Father God, we give you thanks for um, your glory and splendor and majesty, that you are the one who was, who is, who is to come, our faithful King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue to get your attributes. Lord, we pray that you would, uh, through your word, continue to, to sanctify us and, and all this according to the image of Christ. So we ask that you would be with us now by your spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're on now um, week 15 of going through the attributes of God. And last week we looked at God's goodness and God's love. And we got through God's goodness, but we only got about halfway through the love of God. And we finished off looking at the nature of God's covenantal love to us. It was sparked off by a really good question from Annie um, regarding does, does God love us unconditionally? And I think Christians bandy that phrase around quite a lot. And I think we need, to, we need to understand that properly. So if you want clarity on that, you can go and listen to last week. So I'm not going to go into it again. Um, these are recorded, put on a podcast. Um, so you, you can listen to them, listen to them again if you like. So continuing in the love of God, um, we want to look at... Uh, God's, how God loves both his, his own people, us, his church, and the world as a whole. Because okay, we've got to understand that, you know, on the one hand, God does love all of his creation okay, in, 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 a, in a certain sense. And so this is what we, we distinguish here between God's common grace and his saving grace. Okay, so on one hand, God is angry with those who are not yet in Christ because of sin. But yet he still displays certain kind of love to even unbelievers. And we call this um, his, his common grace. And, and we see this in scripture um, with Noah. Okay, common grace is the grace that God grants to the world after the flood with his covenant that he made with Noah. And um, if we look at the text there in Genesis 8 to 9, what we see is that after the flood, God, as a part of his covenant promise with Noah, he promised Noah and mankind after him that he would never again strike the earth with the curse as he had done so with the flood. And instead, what does he promise? He promises there to preserve all mankind and the whole of creation, in fact, by his hand, by his hand of providence, as long as the earth remains. And we see that promise specifically in Genesis 8, 20 to 22. So, in effect, that covenant is still in effect. We still enjoy these common grace blessings that God established under the Noahic covenant. And what is one of the ways in which we know this to be true? 
What is the, the sign which God gave us through, through that covenant? The rainbow. Okay, that is a sign from God for perpetual generations pointing us back to that covenant as a reminder that God is never again going to destroy this earth with a curse like he did with, with that flood. Instead, his, his anger is, is being delayed. It's going to come one day. His judgment's going to come one day when, he, when Christ returns. But for now, in this age, he has promised to preserve all of creation, preserve all mankind as an expression of his common grace, his general love for, for, for all of creation, both his elect and um, reprobate. So this is why Matthew 5, 45 says that God makes the sun rise on both the good and the evil. And he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So this, this is, is not a love of forgiveness. Okay, we must be clear about that. But it's instead a, it's instead a love of, of what we call forbearance. Okay, of long suffering, that he's, God is only he's postponing final judgment, but in the meantime, he's preserving all of creation, all of mankind, believer, unbeliever, with his, his common grace. So any questions regarding any of this? Okay, well then, let's turn to God's love for his people okay this is special grace is a love of forgiveness yeah remember god doesn't forgive everyone if we know our scriptures that's the the truth that that we see throughout the, the word of god he forgives his people and this love of forgiveness we find in the abrahamic covenant okay, or Covenant of Grace, okay, which stands obviously beyond the Abrahamic Covenant, but it's, it's uh, got a wonderful expression in the Abrahamic Covenant. And in this love of forgiveness, expressed through the Covenant of Grace, God justifies his chosen people so that we as his people, we've got nothing to fear come the day of judgment. Okay, we must... Be careful of, of holding to kind of Roman Catholic tendencies or um, even, you know, like a, view, a Muslim view of, of the day of judgment that everyone's going to come before God and um, God's going to weigh up our good works and our bad works on our scale. And you know, if we found wanting, then, you know, we're going to face his, his wrath. If we are in Christ now, we have assurance that come the day of judgment, yeah, our, we know the verdict. Our verdict is that we are not guilty. And we are not guilty. Alex, would you mind just leaving the door open, please, in case other people come in here? Thank you. Um, we know that because we don't come in clothed in our own righteousness, because then we would be found guilty. We come in clothed according to Christ's righteousness and Christ's righteousness is a perfect righteousness so we have nothing to fear 
for that day of judgment if we in Christ. Because we know that God loves us perfectly. In fact, the moment we were justified, eh, that verdict has been in the positive for us. That's part of what justification means. God has, has made us right, counts us as right before him because he's forgiven us our sins and he has counted us um, in the right. He's counted Christ's righteousness to us. So we have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. And those in Christ will be forever his and forever loved by God for all eternity to such a point that nothing in heaven and on earth, height nor depth, angels nor powers ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus now and for all eternity. And it's this particular covenantal love that God only has for his chosen people. Can we see it from the God's Old Testament people, nation of Israel, right through to, to the church, which is the Israel of God. And it's this love he calls his, his chesed love. Okay, in the English Bibles, okay, it's Hebrew word chesed. Um, in the English Bibles, it's usually translated as steadfast love or loving kindness. It's all over the Psalms, especially. And chesed is describing this unbreakable, covenantal, everlasting love that God has between us and his people. This, this love that he, which he sets upon us, not because of anything special within us, but purely because he loves us. And, and so this is the incredible nature of God's love between himself and, and us, his people. Any questions on that? Okay, well, let's then wrap this up. The love of God, we'd say, is most perfectly then displayed where? Sorry, Annie? On the cross, 100%. Okay, because there God gave up his son to die in our place as atonement for, for our sins. And the cross... It was all about the, the Father's, the de, it's a demonstration of the Father's love that drove him to send Jesus. Okay, we've, the progressive Christians have, have, have you know, really mischaracterized the atonement and, and, and perverted it um, to say that it's an example of cosmic child abuse and, and all that, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, how far from the truth that possibly is the cross is anything but cosmic child abuse or, or a horrible father, you know, forcing his son to, to, to do something he didn't want to do. Um, that's frankly, it's blasphemous to even think that, that it, what, what it's all about. No, the cross is the perfect example, the, the perfection of, of God's love that he would Love us so much that he would give up which, that which was most precious to him in order to redeem his own people. That's true love. 
that and Jesus willingly went to the cross as well. He wasn't forced into it. It was his love for his father and for us that led to him to willingly lay down his life for his people. And this, this is the, the nature of God's love. It's not a selfish love. It's a sacrificial love. And that's why 1 John 3.16 says that by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's why Ephesians 5, 2 so it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Questions regarding the love of God before we move on. All right, let's move on to our next attribute, moral attribute in particular, and that is the holiness of God. What does it mean to be holy? Okay, 100%. It's being set apart. And... So the holiness of God then describes this radical, majestic distinction between God and his creation. So this is why God sets apart Israel, his chosen people, from the rest of the world in order that they may be holy. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for holiness is kadosh and Implicit in that word is the meaning to be set apart. So and we see this in types and shadows in, in the Old Testament that the, the promised land was land that was set apart for God's holy people as they were meant to be holy while the rest of the world was not holy. So they could have their own place to, to worship God faithfully um, not to intermarry with the, 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 the pagan nations of the world and let, their, and let them um, drive them away from the worship of, of, of the true God. They were meant to be holy and set apart in, in the land. Then Isaiah 6, Isaiah, see a beautiful a picture of the holiness of God. Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord and he's high and lifted up. And immediately, what is Isaiah struck by as he comes before the presence of God? The holiness of God. What does he cry out? Brandon? Did I hear something? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Okay, so this is what the holiness of God does. When we come before a holy God, we we realize in a very profound way our own sinfulness and our own lack. And that's that's in in a sense why in, in our own worship services... 
we, when we hear the reading of God's law, which reveals something of God's holiness, what is our response to the reading of God's law? Confession of sins. That's what the holiness of God inevitably leads us to and ultimately to help us realize our deep need for a savior. Okay, so God's holiness calls us to to moral purity. And we are called to be holy. Why? Well, because he is. And that's why Leviticus 20.26 says, Be holy. Why? For I am holy. God hates sin. And he demands purity from his people. And you just need to read the book of of Leviticus to see how seriously God uh, views sin and um, how serious he is with regards to holiness. Okay, that's why these hosts of of sacrificial laws and um, these distinctions between clean and, and unclean. And the holiness of God ultimately drives God to, to give Israel the law, okay? because it's through the law that one understands really what holiness is, okay? to, to, to not sin. Okay, but it's also God's holiness which compels him to save his people in Christ. Because in Christ, he makes a sinful people holy through his atonement and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit in believers. So any questions here? I've just really just touched on it in a small way that, that regarding the holiness of God and the implications of that for, for us. And see God. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. No, it, it's 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 a it's a serious thing. Any other questions? Just makes me wonder about heaven. Can we glorified come? Is it then correct to say that we are at that point holy? Because we enter heaven, we can't be in the presence of the Lord if we're sinful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great point. So. Certainly, in our glorification, we will, it's only at that point in which we will be holy in ourselves. Okay, because we will be free from sin. Thank the Lord. We will be our new resurrection bodies and we will be perfect as, as he has promised us. And there, precisely because of that, we will dwell with God, see his face. And that's what this morning's sermon is also going to touch on. Um, so in, in that sense, in ourselves, we will be perfectly holy in the new creation. But, let's understand, we are also called holy now, in a different sense. 
Okay, because the, the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, what does it call, what does the New Testament call Christians? Saints. And that means holy ones. So we are called holy. Um, and there's this wonderful verse in Hebrews 10, um, which then captures our understanding of holy in this side of eternity. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then we'll also get into this in, into the sermon, actually. Um, so it, it's, it's what we call, I suppose, the now and the not yet of the kingdom is an example of it. Is that on the one hand, in Christ, we are counted holy. We are called saints. By virtue of our justification, we have been made right with God. When God sees us, he sees Christ because we are, have been, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It has been counted to us. So for the sake of Christ, we are holy in relation to, to God because of Christ's righteousness. Yet within ourselves, we are still, while we are not under the dominion of sin anymore in Christ as we are new creations, the effects, we still struggle with sin. It's just a, a reality of, of that all Christians, that all of us experience in this age. But by God's grace, because of the work of the Spirit in our lives, He's sanctifying us. He is busy making us holy. So there's... We are not like an unbeliever who can't do anything but sin. Okay, that's Christ, that's different. No, the, we are not slaves to sin anymore. But by God's grace, he is making us holy. He is, there's some progress and throughout our Christian life, but there's never perfection this side of eternity. That's very important for us to understand. We, we don't, we are not... Uh, and that's what the text in Philippians this morning is looking at. There's, we don't believe in sinless perfection. Okay, that, that's a false teaching um, that's plagued the church, unfortunately. Um, so we are holy and we are being made holy. That's the kind of tension mystery we live in in this age. Um, and it's only when we meet Christ face to face in the new creation there we will be holy in ourselves and perfectly um, exist perfectly before God um, for all eternity. Any last questions? Yes, Patrick. So it doesn't help for me to compare myself to Mother Teresa. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think I just don't know how helpful it is for Christians to compare themselves to each other. We should keep our eyes on the prize, on Christ Himself, the one who is making us holy and who is perfectly holy in Himself. Um, you know what Jesus said to his one disciple, he said, what is that 
Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. It's a great comfort. All right. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the time together. Um, Thank you for your promises in your word, and especially with regard to, to your holiness, that in Christ, Lord, you count us as holy. And... We long for that day where we will be made holy in ourselves when you raise us up to glory in the new creation. In the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would continue to sanctify us, putting um, sin to death in our lives, helping us to glorify you. So we pray also now prepare our hearts as we um, enter into the worship service now and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.